Well, good morning, everybody, once again. We are going to continue this morning in our series on gospel joy in the book of Philippians. So if you would, if you have your Bible with you, just go ahead and if you would turn to Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 4, 1. So we're going to finish up chapter 3 and begin uh, just the beginning of chapter 4, just the first verse. You'll see uh, that really it should have been included in uh, chapter 3. So whoever put these verse markers in here kind of made a little bit of a mistake. So um, it wasn't part of the original text that came uh, actually just 500 years ago that they started putting in references like that. But they do help us to, uh, to navigate God's Word. So if you would, Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, we'll start there. But before we get there, oh, yeah, before we get, let me go ahead and dismiss the kids. I have it in my notes, but I still need reminding. So, <laughs> so uh, children are dismissed as long, along with the teachers for Children's Church this morning. So last week we looked at how Christ's righteousness dramatically reorients a person's relationship with God, right? Paul was that once exemplary Jew. Uh, he appeared to have everything together. He had uh, accomplishments. He had the ancestry. But after encountering the risen Christ, he found that all of that was meaningless. Instead, what he needed was the, as we looked at last week, as uh, Pastor Lou showed us from the text, that we need the imputation of Christ's righteousness his righteousness credited to our account in order to be reconciled and have a relationship with God. And that's true for every human being, not just for Paul, but all from everyone from Adam up until today needs that as well. In order to be justified, in order to be declared righteous by God, which is necessary in order to be right with Him, we need to transfer, or we need to exchange our sin to Christ, and then His righteousness needs to be given to us and counted to us. That's what Martin Luther called the great exchange. So on the cross, Jesus bore our sin. He endured the punishment that we deserved. And those who trust in His substitutionary atoning work, God then imputes His righteousness to them. He, he credits Christ's righteousness as perfect obedience to an undeserving sinner's heart. So they're no longer considered enemies of God, but they are now uh, instead His children. No longer in danger of eternal punishment, but now His beloved children uh, who He glories in. And the incredible thing about all this, about the Gospel, which is the good news of what Christ has done, it's, it's a gift that God has given us to be, to, to be accepted by faith in Christ. So our salvation from sin, Satan, and from, uh, from hell is a complete work of God from start to finish that we can accept by faith in Christ's work. And justification is that transformational experience that comes by faith in His work. And that's why Paul could call his past identity meaningless and rubbish. In fact, he called it human excrement. They contributed nothing to his salvation. The years that he spent trying to keep the law and do things his way, he found was meaningless and it was all wasted. But that didn't deflate his joy in knowing now who he was, his identity in Christ. He knew that the old Paul was now dead to sin, had had died, and now he was alive in Christ. As he says in verse 14, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So praise God, he's now changed and transformed. He's got it by new desires. He now has the Holy Spirit living within him that's driving him toward one ultimate goal. 
to grow in his love and his devotion, his pursuit, his service of Jesus Christ. So now Paul's entire life is lived with this joyful gratitude for the grace that God has given him in the gospel. And he's writing this morning, he's, he's writing to the Philippians and to us this morning as we're reading it, he's writing to us as well that Christ's imputed righteousness now then results in a passionate pursuit of practical righteousness, a life of humble obedience to Christ for his glory and for our, our joy. And that is called sanctification. It's a progressively growing in Christ's likeness to be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, the way that the one that we were created in his image. That image is now being uh, restored in part here and full fullest extent when Christ returns for us. But that's what Paul's, Paul's referring to in, in sanctification in, in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then in chapter two twelve he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So sanctification is this now this pursuit, this journey toward holiness. It's endeavoring to live every day according to our new identities, to be who we were made to be. And as we will see in this text this morning, we don't do it alone. Right? God has equipped us with His authoritative word, with His indwelling spirit as well. And we'll also learn that He gives us one another. He gives us brothers and sisters to help us in our pursuit, in cultivating our pursuit of Christ and joy in Him. We don't do it perfectly, right? And the Apostle Paul admits that himself, that he wasn't perfect. But we, as he says, press on, because the prize is Christ Himself. And He's the sole object of our joy. So now Paul is going to switch from giving us, we'll see, his own experiences, and he's going to invite us now into that same pursuit. The desires and the passion that that Paul depicts shouldn't be alien to us as well all these thousands of years later. It should also resonate within our own hearts as well. But we also acknowledge, in all honesty, that our desires for Christ ebb and flow, right? Right? We we still live in in a world that's broken by sin, we still face attacks by the, by the enemy, Satan, and, uh, to, to keep us from pursuing Christ. And, and, and we continue to struggle with, with our own indwelling sin uh, until Christ returns. But, so this morning, we're going to learn the answer to the question, how do we press on? How do we hold true to, the, to, to what we have attained, as Paul says? How do, we, how do we keep from sabotaging our joy? Well, let's, let's look to the text this morning, and then, we'll, and then we'll, we'll look at it from that point forward. We'll look at it, our outline of four points. But first, let's just read the text this morning. So this is the, the, the inerrant, infallible Word of God that we're reading this morning. So hear the Word of the Lord. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 and following. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. May God add a blessing to His Word this morning. So we're going to look at our, our the Scripture this morning in uh, just four parts. Um, it's very easy. Uh, we'll look first at examples to imitate. We'll look then, secondly, at enemies to avoid. We'll look thirdly at an eternity to embrace that we look forward to. And then lastly, Paul tells us to, he encourages us to stand firm. So let's first look to the examples to imitate in verse 17. And the first thing we notice as we look at that verse is that Paul's inviting the, the Philippians to imitate himself. Actually, it's not so much a, an invitation as it is an imperative. That means it's a command that Paul is giving them. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me. And that's a, quite a bold statement. Uh, and I think if we look at it in terms of the way our culture is today, it actually seems pretty arrogant. No one wants to admit that they have flaws, let alone any sin. And so I think we all, if we're honest with each other, with ourselves and with one another, that we always look at ourselves in the best possible light and not um, through the lens of reality sometimes. And yet, ironically, at the same time, we, we have best-selling books, that typically the best-selling books out there are self-help books, where we get advice from somebody else, even though we, we claim to not need help from anybody, that we're good enough on our own, self-help books continue to, uh, to fill the shelves. And that's, isn't that the same thing as pretty much as the author saying, do as I do, or, or live the way that I live, like me, be like me. And if, we're not, if I'm not mistaken, that's the very definition of imitation, is it not? So, what we won't admit out loud, we will seek it out secretly in books, but not just in books, but I mean, if you look also to social media, for instance. Who are the celebrities of our day in social media? It's not just the athletes and, um, and, and, and other actors and, and other celebrities in that way, but they actually are called influencers, social media influencers, right? They're pretty much a paid advertisement, right? A paid uh, living billboard. And so what we do is we, we scroll through our social media feed and, and we look and we see how others talk, what they eat, how they work out, how they dress, what brands they use, and then we, we look at that and we copy them, right? And sometimes we do it subconsciously, and sometimes we actually do it on purpose. Kind of like uh, this video I'm about, we want to put up here to show. It's kind of blurry. Question, what kind of bear is best? It's a ridiculous question. False, black bear. Well, that's debatable. There are basically two schools of thought. Fact, bears eat beets. Oh. Bears, beets, Battlestar Galactica. Bears do not, what is going on? What are you doing? Last week, I was in a drugstore and I saw these glasses, uh, $4. And it only cost me $7 to recreate the rest of the ensemble, and that's a grand total of $11. 
You know what? Imitation is the most sincere form of flattery, so I thank you. Identity theft is not a joke, Jim. <laughs> Millions of families suffer every year. Michael! Oh, that's funny. Michael! That's a funny illustration of imitation, but I, I think it, it shows that the reality, the truth is that by human nature, we, we tend to, to imitate one another. You know, babies do it when they say mama, dada, right? Athletes do it when they try to learn the right way to swing a golf club or to swing a baseball bat or, or to shoot a, a basketball into a hoop. Artists do it, writers do it, architects do it, app designers do it. So we all imitate each other, knowingly or unknowingly, wittingly, unwittingly. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's a, necessarily wrong. It's, it's one of the ways that God has designed us to learn how to grow and to mature uh, in, in, you know, in this life. So all of us are copycats, and, but the assumption is that when we're copying, when we're imitating or mimicking somebody else, it's going to somehow benefit us. We're going to grow from it, right? It's going to make us either happier or healthier or smarter or faster in some way. So we, we, we copy the lives and practice of others knowing that it's going to somehow help us, but we, don't, we tend not to try to, we think we don't, copy people or things or practices that are going to be harmful to us. But the reality is that we, we often are deceived into thinking that everything that we're imitating, everything we're mimicking is good for us, when in actuality it could be dangerous. Uh, we could be approving of or actually practicing sin itself. And rather than following Christ in doing that, we, we we're rejecting him. And because of sin, we, we are susceptible to satisfying our fleshly passions rather than pursuing and treasuring Christ. And so the point Paul is making here is that we learn to live godly lives, not just by knowing right theology, although that's very important, we should, but also by watching faithful people. Right, by observing how other believers live and then following in those footsteps. What we need then are good and godly examples to imitate. Faithful men and women who are, are committed to Christ and have a passion for His glory. And Paul offers first himself as, a, as an example to follow. He says the same thing to the, to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1, where he says, "...be imitators of me as I am of Christ." But he not only just refers to himself as an example, he also lists others um, that we should imitate that also share in that pursuit of Christ. If you look at the rest of verse 17, he says, And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. And so probably the immediate context here is are the people who are with Paul, uh, Paphroditus and Timothy, are there with him. So, uh, and they would know the Philippians, as we read earlier in, in this book, that they, in this letter, they, they knew them personally. So they knew the kind of life they lived, and, and they could follow in their example. But we should also remember us, 2,000 years later or so, that not, not all the godly men and women uh, have died out, right? They, they're, they're, they're still... God is still uh, saving people, and they're still coming to faith in Christ, and they're still godly examples. There have been throughout all of history, and I, and I think there are some, I don't think, there have been many who have actually uh, impacted generations of believers. And so I think we should avail ourselves, for, for instance, of biographies, autobiographies of great men and women of the faith in their pursuit of Christ. They loved Jesus, and they, and they served Him faithfully. But the best place... I think, we should all be reminded of, 
to follow examples comes in community, right? Specifically within the local church. God has given us pastor elders, deacon deaconesses, as leaders in the church, not only teach us with their words, but also to serve as examples for how we ought to live our lives. We could also include community group, community group leaders, ministry leaders, as, as well as just older believers, mature believers, who have been walking with Christ for a long period of time. Look at those who model a Christ-like life. Look and listen and observe closely. And that, that level of looking and observing can only come in relationship, in the context of relationships. We can learn from those who suffer loss and yet have remained faithful in their pursuit of joy in Christ. It's also uh, it's what's one thing to to hear Paul's commands not to grumble them and to complain, but it's another thing to look at somebody's life who are, are in life's pressure cooker and yet don't utter complaints, but rather continue to joyfully uh, serve Christ and show their gratitude and thanksgiving for the grace that He has shown them. So the question for us this morning is, are we living as examples for others to follow as we follow Christ? Is it clear in our lifestyle that that we treasure Christ? Are you building relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ that are strong where you're weak and vice versa? Right? Spiritual growth occurs in community, not in isolation. So if you're not good at praying, find somebody who is particularly gifted at, at prayer. If you're not good at evangelism, talk to somebody who's gifted at boldly sharing the gospel to others. Are you having a hard time reading scripture regularly? Then pattern your life after someone who is faithfully reads and memorizes God's word. Right? Imitate those who follow Christ and who, ser- who, who Christ himself who serves as our savior and also as our ultimate example. Amen. So Paul then, after stating the importance of, of imitating godly examples, he warns that he's going to go on now to warn the Philippians to avoid those who have rejected the cross and who have embraced worldliness. So we'll look, look at number two, enemies to avoid in verses 18 through 19. Paul says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So it's, it's apparent here that Paul has already warned the Philippians about these people, these enemies of the cross, and he finds it necessary to once again remind them, because it's that important that they understand. That these people who are they're hanging around the church, they're claiming to follow Christ, but their, their lives are, are fundamentally opposed to Christ. They're, they're opposed to their profession that they've made. Right? So in other words, their lives don't match their confession. Their walk doesn't match their talk. And they've made it clear by their behaviors that they reject the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right? They've rejected Him as Savior, and they've, and they've essentially trampled on the cross, the cross on which Christ died for the sins of the world. And so in other words, they have rejected the gospel. But this time, Paul's a little bit different in his warning. He's saying he's, he's tearing up as he's, he's writing this to them. 
Why do you think he's, he's tearing up? Well, I mean, it could be that he, maybe he knows these apostates, those who have, have perf- made professions but have then walked away from Christ. He, maybe he knows them personally. Maybe they were part of the early church plan in, in Philippi, and they've, since they have, they've now deconverted, in a sense, and, and, they, and now he weeps for them. Personally, I think it's not so much that as it is, I think that Paul's tears flow from his pastoral love and his care for this, this young church. Now, he has a deep love for the Philippians because of the, the rich gospel ministry that they've shared together. During his ministry travels, they were the, one of the first churches to support and to partner with him. As we'll look at in the next chapter, in chapter 4, they, they also regularly sent supplies to Paul while he was on, uh, on his missions, his, his ministry. And they were actually, at the time of this writing, were still sending him supplies. They're, that's how Epaphroditus had gotten to Paul, was to bring the supplies. Now he, was a, he wanted to send um, Epaphroditus back to encourage them. And now he's hearing the report, reports, probably from Epaphroditus, who was coming from the Philippians to him, that these false teachers these, and, and these apostates are threatening the church. They're continuing to threaten the church. And Paul is this protective father, right? He's concerned for their spiritual well-being, his, their spiritual safety. He doesn't want them to fall into the trap of imitating the wrong people, imitating those whose lives are, are endowed by evil deeds. He doesn't want the Philippians to sabotage the joy that they have in Christ by leaving Christ. And so what he's going to do is he, he goes on to list four different characteristics to identify who these enemies are and, and how they walk, the pattern of their life that, we should, that they should and that we should avoid. First, he says, um, he addresses their destiny, that their, their destiny is destruction. He says their end is destruction. Their life essentially carries with it the sentence and the stench of death. They deceived themselves into thinking that they, they could live their best life now without any concept of eternity whatsoever. And by rejecting Christ and ridiculing the cross, this ultimately leads to their eternal destruction. And this destruction is not just some kind of impersonal consequence. It it means for the unrepentant sinner that they're going to face the Jesus that they rejected. Not the meek and mild Jesus, but the holy, wrathful, righteous judge who carries with him the Sentence of eternal death. And so Paul's reminding him, reminding us this morning, that Jesus is is either your Savior and Lord, or he's your judge who will exact punishment in the flames of hell one day. And that's the default default motive for all of us, right? For every human being, that's what it means to be uh, to, ha- to be part of the human condition. Because of Adam's sin in the garden, the entire human race has now been plunged into sin and into the consequence of sin, which is death. So, by default, we willfully defy our Creator. But the good news is that just as by one man's sin entered into the world and into human relationships and into hu- humanity, we are also saved by one man. Right? The new Adam, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And that we can trust in his cross, and, and by that, we can be saved from the wrath of God. But these enemies of the cross, they, they refuse to acknowledge their sin. 
They're blinded by their fleshly desires. And that's the second point that Paul wants to point out this morning, is that Paul is pointing to this, this, that they have an insatiable appetite for their desires. Their God is their belly. In fact, the word here that we use for belly in this translation, ESV, is translated other places as appetite. And Paul writes a similar warning in Romans chapter 16. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Sounds a lot like what we're reading this morning, right? For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So who are these enemies that Paul's referring to? Here, Paul, he doesn't, he doesn't really identify them, which makes it a little more difficult to understand. Even the characteristics that he gives are pretty nonspecific. Um, commentators don't agree, they, they have, uh, um, but they usually fall into one or two categories. So these enemies could be one or two groups of people. Either they're the, the Judaizers, that Paul previously mentioned earlier in this chapter, in verses 1 and 2, um, or they could be the Greek uh, Epicureans who were notor- notorious hedonists, meaning that they were pleasure seekers. It's more difficult, I think, to see how this could relate to the Judaizers. They, they didn't appear to be you know, t- taken away by the desires of the flesh or desires. They didn't look like they were licentious. Instead, they were ruled by their, essentially by their rules, by their re- regulations and restrictions. But if he is referring to, them, to their Judaizers here, then it could be that, he's, that Paul's indicting them for their eating habits, uh, and by that, specifically by their kosher dietary restrictions and regulations. And if that's the case, then he's pointing out that this kosher diet that they're trying to keep is, is a means for their justifications, a means for their salvation, a means for their right standing before God. And so in that sense, by restricting themselves to that degree, they have made a God out of their belly in a sense, in that way. They have rejected Christ, sadly, and they're now trusting in their works, including what they eat and drink. I'm more inclined, however, to kind of see this as, as more of a, a broad uh, uh, reference that Paul's making to uh, chasing pleasures by pl- fleshly desires and appetites. Right? I, those who once confessed Christ, but the gospel never really took root in their hearts. Instead, they're... Inst- Instead of being controlled by Christ, um, they're being controlled by this insatiable appetite for bodily pleasure. So, in a sense, they, they worship their wants, right? They, they give full vent to their passions and, and their desires. And so, they'll stop at nothing to continue to try to satisfy their fleshly appetites for, for worldly things. But I think whether Paul here is blasting the Judaizers. Uh, for, the, for the way they're living, their legalism or the hedonists, if he's blasting them for their licentiousness, I think we can all agree, and Paul would agree, and would claim that the antidote for either one of those lifestyles is the same. Right? Overindulgence in the flesh is not going to dull the guilt for their sin, and neither is uh, a strict asceticism going to wipe away sin. Right? And it's not some middle way either. It's not some kind of like, well, living in some kind of moderation is the right, is the right way to, to, to live. It's actually, it's an entirely different highway altogether. It's an entirely different path altogether. It's called the gospel, right? Amen? And that's what Paul uh, wants them to be aware of this morning uh, as he's writing them and for us to be reminded of 
um, that it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves. It's not a strict asceticism, and it's not going to be living in, um, according to our desires of the flesh. But he goes on further beyond that. Paul says that their, 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 their destiny is destruction. They're driven by their desires. These enemies of the cross, who are trekking toward eternal death, are not only driven by their desires, but they actually glory in their shame, he says. Their moral compass has been completely shattered. So they have this distorted view of what is good and what is evil. The prophet Isaiah used a similar warning in the Old Testament when he says, when he warned against those who call evil good and good evil, who pursue or put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So this intentional redefinition of good and evil is really at root an attempt to justify a sinful lifestyle. So these people, they knew that the way they were living was evil, but they had abandoned God's word, they had abandoned God's moral standards, and turned what was, should have been shameful for them into something that they thought was worth celebrating. So they have no need for the crucified Christ because this idea of sin and shame and, and forsaking personal fame for God's glory, it, to them that's just simply a, a religious construct. So instead they, they parade their, their sin for everyone to see because they believe they're not accountable to anybody but themselves. And by doing that they've essentially created their own version of morality with themselves at the center. For them, even facts and truth that are plainly obvious are opportunities to ultimately attack the author of truth. And it would be very easy to point to lots of different examples in our culture today where that happens. But the question for us this morning is not just to identify it out there, but is there sin in my life in your life, that, in, in our lives, that, that we're coddling, either secretly or maybe we're even openly celebrating. And that leads to the, the last characteristic that Paul wants to point out this morning. The destiny is destruction for these enemies of Christ. They're driven by their desires. They glory in their shame. And their minds are set on earthly things, as we see in verse, thir- uh, verse 19. They're entirely focused all of her energies and thoughts are focused on earthly things. And what Paul's not referring to here is just the practical, everyday life that we live. But what he's, what he's referring to here is just a life that's characterized by materialism, by humanism, a devotion to world systems that oppose God himself and God's will. And Paul's describing people whose hopes and dreams and confidence and goals are all demonstrated that, in that they, they, they prize, they, they prioritize, and they prefer the things of this world above Christ himself. And they, probably the traditional term that we use to describe this would be worldliness. But a, a more contemporary word, which we should not shy away from, is secularism. And secularism interprets everything in terms of natural forces while never giving glory to the sovereign God who created the universe. And it's not just some uh, 
some uh, neutral position, some harmless uh, moral neutral position. It's actually outright opposition to God that inevitably will lead to destruction, as Paul has pointed out already here. And the reason for that is because secularism has no room for God or for his revealed word. And also it can't make, and because it doesn't have, it doesn't have that, it doesn't have God's word at the center and an understanding of God being the, being the author of the universe, is that it can't make any sense of this inward longing with, within all of us, within the human heart, for meaning, for, fil- for fulfillment, for, for purpose in life. It obviously has no room for understanding what true joy is. So what it will do is it will attempt to scratch all those itches that I just referred to, all those different meanings and for, for, for want and fulfillment and purpose and joy, and it's going to try to, use, try to scratch that itch by using material things. It's going to try to, to do that with uh, achievements and with fame. But the problem is none of those things will provide satisfaction or relief for what we're longing for. And also, secularism has no meaningful concept of eternity. So if you think about it, it has really no other choice but to focus all of its thoughts and energies on this world, on this life, including trying to treat this broken world, which we all see as, as obviously broken and distorted, trying to treat it as though it's heaven and it's not. Family, there's, there's a growing obsession with the world that can lead us not just into buying with, with the world selling, but also to divorcing ourselves from Christ, from, from, from pushing Christ away. And it, it's not just the enemies over there that are, that are behaving in that, that way. It can certainly creep into our own thinking as well as believers. It can, t- it can creep into our, our thoughts. It can creep into our worldview, into our behavior. And that's why Paul also warns in Romans chapter 12, he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we must test everything by Scripture. We must take every thought captive to ensure that we're not being allured away from Christ and becoming, uh, identifying ourselves as enemies of Christ. When we, when we are essentially, though, the opposite. We're, we're, we're God's beloved. And Paul has confidence, though, in the Philippians, right? And that's, 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 that is one thing that he shines forth here in his, uh, and now his contrast, as he's going to contrast the enemies, but he's going to say, but us, but our destiny is different. Our identity is different. And he goes on to remind them of their glory and their glorious destiny and we're going to look at a third point. Immediately following this description of the enemies, as, uh, the enemies of the cross as having their minds set on earthly things, Paul then says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And, and by butting those two together, as he's talking about the, the, the mindset on earthly things, and, and yet our citizenship being in heaven, the contrast couldn't be any clearer. right? That the enemies of the cross are fixated on the earth when believers possess an otherworldly citizenship. In heaven. The Philippians needed reminding them that they are pilgrims that are just living in this world temporarily. And so are we as well. 
that we are just temporary residents of this world until we make it to our final destination, which is the, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. And the Philippians were actually a living illustration of that a very situation, and, and that's, I think, the reason why Paul uses the language here of citizenship rather than talking maybe about eternal life, which is the same thing, but, but he's using different language because of the Philippians' uh, situation where they were living. If you remember, Philippi uh, was actually a Roman outpost. It was a Roman colony possessed by Rome, and, and because of that, the Philippians were actually members of that distant city of Rome. They were citizens of Rome, but living far away from Rome. And they prized their Roman identity and their citizenship and all the rights and the privileges that came with that. So although they lived in one location, they were actually citizens of another location. Our citizenship in heaven is a present reality. And and there's this longing in all of our hearts for home. It's a longing that's like a homesickness, and that should affect how we live our lives. It should remove the allure of the transitory things here in this, in this world, and a longing for the heavenly, the heavenly home. Lincoln Duncan said it this way. He said, quote, in other words, if you're not heavenly minded, if you're not homesick for your home, if you're not longing for something that this world can't give you, you're utterly vulnerable to worldliness. Because until that point, you are vulnerable to believing that this world can actually give you something that can last. End quote. If you're a Christian, then you're secured in Christ's atoning work. And we have an, we have an eternal home and a destiny that's waiting for us. But that doesn't mean that we are completely free of sin yet. Right? We continue to press on toward greater Christ-likeness. And one way that we do that is that we remember our citizenship in heaven. The enemies of the cross find their identity here, and they waste their life on trivial things, satisfying their fleshly appetites and, and glorying in their shame, all to their eternal detriment. But the Christian has been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. And as citizens of of heaven, we await that kingdom. But more importantly, we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Savior Himself, who is far greater than any earthly example or faithful example. He is the one that we were made to worship and we'll finally be with Him one day. And that's our glorious hope. Amen? And Paul makes clear in, in, in verse 21, 21 that the eternal anticipation of his coming is also the hope of our transformation. So currently, we, we, we do experience the, the presence of Christ in this life through his abiding Holy Spirit. But one day, we will actually be with Christ in soul and in body. And that's what Paul also wants to, us for, to see, that in order for us to be with him forever, with Christ forever, he is going to remake our bodies. We will inherit a new glorified body that are now compatible with our perfected desires, with our perfected attitudes and our devotion to Christ. So in other words, we're going to inhabit a body that's, that's suitable, finally, for loving and serving Christ without the, the tugs of sin. 
without the complications of uh, degeneration and sickness and decay and even death. A body that will no longer be at odds with our spiritual desires, but we will finally be able to give full expression to those spiritual desires. Early in this chapter, Paul acknowledged our present limitations and his desire for a greater Christ-likeness. And now he's reminding him that someday that dream that he has, that we have, that we resonate with, will be a reality for all of us. And that's, that's called glorification. That's the, the, the consummation of God's salvation for his people. We'll, we'll finally experience holistic redemption of body, mind, and soul that's suitable, finally, for unmitigated worship of God, fully treasuring Him and finally completing our joy. And then we see here Paul reminds him also that Christ is going to perform this by His glorious power. There's no power, the way that he describes this, this power, there's, there's no power that can stand in opposition to Christ's power, right? It's an, event, it's an invincible power. He says it's a power by which enables him even to subject all things to himself. So with this invincible power, he not only subjects everything under his supreme authority, but he uses that same power then to transform our bodies to be like his body. Just think about that for a moment. Jesus is employing the same power, the same dominating, conquering power to bring about also our glorification. So in other words, he's holding nothing back from making us what we need to be in order to fully enjoy him forever. Wow. Isn't that amazing love that God has for us? What a Savior, amen? And finally, after giving that beautiful reminder, Paul then points out to the Philippians that they need to also, though, stand firm in the Lord. Look at how he dresses them here. He calls them brothers and sisters. He tells them he loves them. He tells them he misses them. He calls them his joy and his crown. He calls them his beloved. It's just dripping with affectionate language. And I think, honestly, my honest opinion is that he is tearing up again as he's writing this. He's, this time I think he's tearing up though with pride because he's confident in the genuine nature of their faith. And that's what's bringing him joy as he's writing this to them. And that's why he calls them his joy and his crown. And by talking about this crown, I think he's, he's, he's alluding to uh, the, the, the crown, the garland that would be placed around uh, an athlete when they complete the games and they, and they win the prize or, or a, a, a military uh, a soldier who, who wins military valor is, is given this garland um, to wear. He's considering their faith that they have, that they're, uh, that they're living in, a token of the victory of his service to Christ. So he's using this most affectionate terms, uh, this most affectionate language here as a way of encouraging them, but also to instructing them to stand firm, to remain steadfast in their faith. Don't relax your efforts in pursuing Christ. Remain determined to finish well. It says don't sabotage your joy by, by falling for the enemy's tactics, but keep your minds instead firmly fixed on the cross and also firmly fixed forward to glory when Christ returns in that hope that we have. And that takes effort. It takes resolve. 
It takes, it takes a lot of, of work to avoid that, that tug of sin that's, that, that doesn't happen on its own, right? We, we, we have to resist sin. There's no end to the way that the enemy is going to con- continue to, to make the things of this world look more and more appealing to the eye. So then we must continue to remind ourselves and to model for one another the glorious supremacy of Christ above all things. We have to remind ourselves and each other of our other citizenship, of our true citizenship. And when we rehearse the gospel, right, when we fix our minds on King Jesus and on his kingdom, and we believe that he is better, that's going to fuel our efforts to stand firm. Right? A future day of glory is coming when Christ will finally reign and we will see his enemies subdued under his feet. Sin will finally be destroyed and death itself will finally be annihilated. We'll finally be able to experience the joy of being with our Savior and our Lord well, because we'll be able to also live in perfect conformity to his will because we'll have be perfectly conformed in his likeness with new bodies. But we're reminded day in and day out that the day has not yet arrived. But until then, are we cultivating a longing for that eternal home? Or are we wrapped up with uh, making this time that we have on earth, this temporary pilgrimage here, as comfortable as possible? Are we being controlled by our desires, or are we being controlled by the Holy Spirit? Are we tuning our minds and our hearts to God's Word? The way that we can restoke that joy in Christ is by looking back at the cross, at what Christ has accomplished for us, and also looking forward to glory and what Christ is going to fulfill when he returns for us, right? And the the thing is, in closing here, is that you can't embrace glory until you first embraced the cross, right? So the question is, have you done that this morning? Have you repented of sin? Have you trusted the person and work of Jesus Christ? If not, then I invite you to join today to to know Christ, to to, to repent of sins, and to, to... to trust in His glorious atoning work for your sin. And if you're a believer, I just encourage you, encouraging myself as I was preparing the sermon, that we need to continue to stand firm. And we don't do it by our own efforts, but we, again, we look to the cross and we look to glory. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you again for your word this morning and, and how it is always timely for us. We as people never change um, from generation to generation we all are haunted by sin. We're all corrupted by sin and, uh, and a need for a Savior. And so we thank you for your word. It makes it abundantly clear that we continue to need you. Uh, we need your Son. And we need your Spirit to continue to empower us, those who have already been informed to your likeness, to continue to pursue holiness and to be more and more uh, Christ-like uh, because that's where we're going to find our, our joy and that's where we're going to find... Uh, our joy here is by continuing to fixate on Christ and pursue His, His glory. And so, Lord, I just pray that You would uh, continue to work in our hearts, that You would challenge us where we need to be challenged. You would encourage us where, where we need to be encouraged uh, from this text this morning. And uh, I just pray ultimately that You, Holy Spirit, would have Your way with us and that You would uh, conform our minds, our hearts, our behaviors, um, and our intentions of our hearts um, to, to Christ. 
um, and may he be exalted in, in our lives, uh, and may we um, share that, that um, with others as we uh, continue to pursue your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.